0: And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 11, as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us and we thank you for your word. We ask you to guide us by your spirit into truth as the son reveals you, as his word has revealed him. So guide us into a deeper understanding of you and your counsel and your will and your comfort today. We ask your blessings and your mercies on us now in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Last night, you presumably recovered the hour of sleep that you lost back in March. Do you, do you feel like it? Do you feel like you got that hour back in the bank? Is that the way it works? Do you have a, a sleep account number, and then, you know, you were uh, debited an hour, and then now you have that back. Do you feel energized? Do you feel, you feel better? Uh, this ritual of changing the clocks is something I've never quite understood, even though it's been explained to me uh, a bunch of times, it's, it's never made sense to me, and it, in fact, there's some evidence that it may not only be useless, which I am uh, firmly of the opinion that it's useless, but it may actually be, it may actually be harmful. There are some metrics that show that whenever we play with the clocks, there's a significant rise in car accidents and heart attacks and strokes and workplace injuries in the week after a time change. In the spring, losing an hour of sleep, just it just throws everything off. You feel dull and tired and irritable. And now in the fall, everybody for the next two weeks is going to say, boy, it sure does get dark soon. It sure does get dark early. And, and it does. Remember, we used to change the clocks back early October, wasn't it? Wasn't it earlier? And now we've shifted it later, and so it's even more pronounced now than it was. But even that, that's going to disrupt your schedule, especially if you have small children who are used to a certain sleeping and eating schedule. It wreaks havoc with them. As well, when little kids get tired, they don't even know that they're tired, and they're so tired that they can't even sleep. It's this weird paradox where they're too tired to sleep, and you just want them to close their eyes, just give in, just rest. And uh, so you can too, so you can rest too. It reminds us of how important rest is. It it, it is vital. Uh, a, A part of what we need as creatures is sleep. This need for sleep is not a result of the fall. It's not as if we had perfect glorified bodies and we would never need to sleep. Yes, God created us for work, but He also created us for rest and leisure and enjoyment of His creation. God Himself rested after six days of work in the creation week. And then He wove Sabbath into the fabric of creation. He put Adam in a deep sleep in the garden. Before the fall, Adam was in a deep sleep, and out of that sleep, he created Eve. He created the bride out of Adam's sleep. There's something to meditate on there, how, how sleep can be fruitful and productive with God's blessing, that actually um, sleep and rest and, and leisure is, um, is fruitful in so many ways, uh, under God's blessing and under God's provision. But, but God builds rest into creation. God's law requires a weekly Sabbath where you give your whole house rest. Even your working animals are to rest on the Sabbath. God prescribed a calendar of festival Sabbaths. So there, uh, there are times to stop your work and eat and drink and give thanks and, and cease your works and rest in God's completed works. You rest in what he has done. You rest in his His good creation. Uh, and his good gifts. His law, God's law, has ordinances for Sabbaths on the land, and a Sabbath from debt, and a Sabbath from servitude. Uh, This is all built into his, his, his word and his law. Just as music is made up of notes and rests, so God has ordered the world with work and Sabbath. Rest is a blessing. Rest is a feature of obedience to God. When we are obedient, he gives us rest. So the psalmist says, he gives his beloved sleep. And yet, this rest seems so elusive to us. One of the most often repeated warnings about our modern lifestyles is that we don't get enough sleep. It's it's part of the big three that we hear all the time. We eat poorly, we don't exercise, and we don't know how to rest. And no doubt that's true. But at the same time, it's as if our world is engineered to keep us miserable and sick and fatigued. You can add to the physical exhaustion that we all experience the sheer mental exhaustion of living in times of significant instability. We've been all going through the most socially disruptive period that, that any of us have ever lived through. I suspect that we've got a little, a little moment now to catch our breaths. Probably it'll last up until about Tuesday, and then, and then it's all going to go crazy again. Uh, the, before this next wave of insanity affects everything, it can happen at any moment, so enjoy this little respite that we have. But this all puts us in an exceedingly stressful state of body and mind. This, this twice a year playing around with the clocks is just a, a representative. It's, it's not the most, you know, uh, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened. It's the least of our inconveniences. But it's still representative of the kind of, of nonsense we put up with that impacts our lives. And, and not for the better. Here comes Jesus the voice of the savior cutting through the clutter of anxious thoughts. Here are the words of the savior to the bone tired and to the worn out and to the weary. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest in Matthew 11. Uh, that we're studying today. The Lord Jesus promises a kind of rest that is greater than getting an extra hour of sleep or even taking a vacation. He is promising rest not only for your mind and not only for your body, but rest for your souls. That kind of deep, satisfying, refreshing, peaceful Sabbath rest that you won't find anywhere else but in Christ. Amid all the sources of stress, and harassment, and misery, uh, the Lord Jesus is the fountain of rest. So as we continue our study of Matthew's gospel today, let's see the context in which he makes these promises, and let's remember how we got to this point. What have we seen so far over the last several chapters? Jesus has taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He's called them to a righteousness that exceeds the supposed righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, in that sermon, Jesus exposes the the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees as no righteousness at all. It's this burdensome, hypocritical system that looks for ways to avoid obeying God while giving the appearance of, of doing so. So to his disciples, Jesus says, following me means rejecting the oral law tradition of the Pharisees and obey my father's law in all of its clarity and fullness and goodness. That was the Sermon on the Mountain. And then, after delivering the sermon, Jesus leaves the mountain and does 10 mighty, miraculous acts, one right after another, 10 demonstrations of the power of God over sickness, over uh, death, over nature, over demons, 10 acts that confirm Jesus' teaching and prove that, that this salvation that Jesus is bringing is for all of life, it's for all of the world. The salvation that Jesus brings is not just so you can have nice thoughts or warm feelings, but it changes everything. Uh, The the deliverance and salvation that, that Jesus brings is for every sphere of human life. Everything in creation, both seen and unseen, is under the authority of Jesus. That's what he demonstrates with these miracles. Now, after showing this power to his disciples, Jesus selects and commissions 12 of them, 12 apostles, to go out into all the cities of Israel carrying this gospel and this power with them. As they head out, as the 12 apostles head out, uh, some disciples of John the Baptist approach Jesus with some questions. John sent them to investigate. Are you the one we're looking for? Are you the coming one? Or are we waiting for someone else? And Jesus tenderly confirms, yes, I am the one, I am the Messiah look at all these things that are happening. This is all the fulfillment of what Isaiah said would, would, would take place. And then Jesus praises John because John brought his questions to the only source of truth. And in the same breath, Jesus rebukes the generation who is not listening to John and who is not listening to Jesus. They're not following John's pursuit of truth toward the source as John did. Now, as we open this new section today, Jesus turns his attention to all the cities that the apostles have gone out into, these cities who have also rejected the the deliverance that Jesus is offering. He mentions several of them by name, Israelite cities that he compares to some iconic idolatrous cities. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus, the Lord says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Chorazin and Bethsaida are these little villages in Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus has been focusing all of his work to this point. These are the hometowns of some of the apostles. The most exciting things that have ever happened in a thousand years, the most exciting things that have ever happened in these little towns was when Jesus came and healed their sick and cast out demons and raised the dead. And yet, they have responded to that with indifference. They have responded to that with this coldness. And there has been no repentance, no general turning from 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 their sins and turning to Jesus. Jesus says to them, if the same things that were done in these cities had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon are these twin cities up north on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, big shipping and trading merchant centers, very, very wealthy Uh, They keep coming up, Tyre and Sidon keep coming up in the Old Testament as these fabulously wealthy, exceptionally wicked Canaanite cities. For a time, Tyre had a good king, uh, Hiram. Remember Hiram? He sent supplies and he sent men to work on the temple in the days of King Solomon. Hiram of Tyre worshipped Yahweh. He gave thanks to Yahweh, but that didn't last. Generations later, after the kingdom of Israel split, Baal-worshipping Sidonian princess. She was from Sidon, from from this same area. Uh, Jezebel, Baal-worshipping Sidonian princess Jezebel, was ruling over the northern kingdom, and she persecuted the prophets and put them to death. So Tyre and Sidon are these icons of rebellion and idolatry and apostasy, and Jesus boldly declares to these villages of Galilee, to his home country, to the places where his men have come from, he says to these villages, if Tyre and Sidon had seen what you have seen, they would have cried out to Yahweh. Which is to say, it's just to say, you think Baal worshipers are bad? You think Tyre and Sidon are bad? You think Hollywood's bad? You think think Wall Street? You think Washington, D.C. is bad? Uh, You think these places are bad? You are worse off than they are. Jesus says to these Galilean cities. Look at verse 22. I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than you. Israel and these villages of Galilee have received this great privilege of having Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, come to them and preach to them in person and confirm his word with many healing miracles that have made their lives better. And they have rejected him that privilege of having Jesus come to them personally is attended with a responsibility to hear and obey. And that's, that's true for all of us. The fact that we have the blessing of God's word, exposure to it, the ability to come together to hear it read and we can talk about it together. We're exposed to God's grace and his mercies revealed to us through Jesus and through his word. That is an immense privilege that comes with, it it is attended with a duty to hear it and obey it. This revelation binds us uh, in responsibility. And so they were as well, and they have not. They have not heard, they have not obeyed, they have not repented. And so their condemnation is greater than those to whom Jesus has not personally appeared. Jesus mentions another familiar Canaanite city, Capernaum, verse 23. He says, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. To this point in Matthew's gospel, Capernaum had practically been Jesus's home base all these months. Capernaum was a fishing village full of blue collar, ordinary people whose arrogance, Jesus compares to Babylon. In in Isaiah, um, uh, God compares uh, Babylon, uh, I'm I'm sorry, God talks about uh, Babylon's arrogance this way. Babylon says, I will arise to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly. Yet, God says, you'll be thrust to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. You have exalted yourself, Babylon, and yet you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the abyss. Now, Jesus hangs these same words on the Galilean city of Capernaum, where he spent all this time. Because of Capernaum's arrogance and lack of repentance, Jesus takes that formula that Isaiah used for Babylon and he applies it to them and says, you think you're exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Capernaum. Um, He implicitly, Jesus implicitly compares them to Babylon in this way um, by quoting the words of Isaiah. He's, He's using the same thing Isaiah said about Babylon, but he explicitly, he openly compares them to Sodom. What could be worse than Sodom? What could be worse than what happened to Sodom? Who has ever been judged more decisively and ultimately? than Sodom. What could be worse? Can you think of anything worse than fire from falling from the sky to destroy your city, to wipe you off the map forever? Is there anything worse than that that could happen to a city? Jesus said, there is something worse. There is absolutely something worse. That's the judgment that's coming for Capernaum. The coming day of the Lord, upon the proud, arrogant, unrepentant cities of Galilee, the day of the Lord on Galilee is going to be more severe than the day of Sodom's judgment and destruction. They, these cities, along with the rest of Israel, are locked into their concept of how they think Messiah's reign is going to come. They're depending on and and focused on this deliverance from the tyranny of Rome, and they can't think past this this is a problem in in the first century it's what brings them to destruction they are focused on the tyranny of Rome when Jesus comes to them offering them a deliverance not simply from the tyranny of Rome. Jesus offers them deliverance from the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of death and the grave and the tyranny of this oral law tradition that they're laboring under, the laws of the scribes and Pharisees. He wants to free them from the dominion of Satan. They're focused on being freed from the dominion of Herod and from Caesar and in their short-sighted selves self confidence because Jesus doesn't come offering what they think they need. They reject him. Don't miss the tears in the voice of Jesus as he pronounces these things. The word woe expresses pity and sorrow, not just anger, but pathos. Jesus is not throwing a fit. Jesus isn't and his temper's not fe- flaring up because he feels personally insulted that they didn't want what he was offering. That's not why he is saying these things. This is Jesus grieving over their unbelief. He has offered them the most precious thing in the universe, deliverance from the uh, uh, slavery to sin, deliverance from that to real Sabbath, a great spiritual rest from all the woes and the terrors of their world, and yet they just discarded it. Isaiah said this would happen. Isaiah 28, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. I'm sure at some time in your life, you've tried to help somebody. You've offered them what you think is the best thing in the world. You've offered them the thing that they need, and they selfishly, arrogantly, proudly reject the the help that is offered. They don't want it. They won't have it and you grieve for them. You grieve for their, their independence from this thing that you know will, will change their lives. Well, that's how Jesus is responding. Um, I don't doubt that there's a holy anger here, but it's an anger coming not from pride, but it's an anger coming from a very sad and broken heart over what they have rejected. They are to be pitied, which is a helpful perspective. When we are dealing with sinners, when we're dealing with people who reject the truth, to have both this real anger over their faithlessness, this real righteous anger over their sin, but at the same time, a pity for what they're missing out on, a a heartbreak over what they've rejected and the way that their minds have been darkened by sin. They're as much a victim of their own sins as a perpetrator of their sins. And it's that, that sorrow and that heartbreak that comes out in what Jesus is saying. And there in the midst of his grief over their unbelief, Jesus stops and he prays out loud to his father in heaven. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Every once in a while in the Gospels, we get these little glimpses into the inner life of the Trinity. Uh, We see the ways that the members of the Trinity communicate with each other. When Jesus speaks to the Father, the Father says something about the Son. And every one of these little windows is... Uh, uh, full of this deep, rich theological truth. And here what is uh, revealed to us is the subject matter of why some people submit to the Lord Jesus, why some people receive him joyfully, and others, like these cities that he's been talking about, why do others... Not receive him? Why do they not repent? Why do some people hear and obey and other people find the things that Jesus says confusing and and offensive even? Well, in this prayer, Jesus speaks to his father and it's revealed that there are times where the Father hides and, and conceals. There are times where Jesus is, is the open revelation that God reveals himself through his son fully. And there are other times that the father hides and conceals. Now, this might be something we immediately take exception to and say, that can't be right. What, what in the world? God hides things. God discloses some things, but doesn't reveal other things. How, how, is that, how is that fair? Why would God ever conceal anything? And by the way, if the works done in Capernaum... Would have caused Tyre and Sidon to repent. If what was done in Capernaum would have caused Sodom to repent, why didn't God do those works in those cities? Why didn't He do that? If if God knows what it would have taken to bring them to sackcloth and ashes, and He didn't do it, what's up with that? What's going on? Well, All the answers rest here in this exchange between Jesus and his father's, with his father and concerning his father's will to reveal or conceal himself. The answers rest in God's sovereign, perfectly holy, eternal will and the uh, truth that he is the potter. We are the clay. This is his sovereign will in all things that's revealed here, which is always good and Uh, comforting truth, not an offensive truth. Jesus says the father hides things from the wise and the prudent and reveals them to babes. Now, he's obviously using the words wise and prudent in a tongue-in-cheek way. They think they're wise, but to be truly wise, a wise response to the gospel would be to accept it, right? So wisdom is justified by her children, Jesus said just a few verses ago but the supposed wise of the day, the scholars and the scribes, the educated Jews are all those who reject Jesus. And so the father hides from them his kingdom. He hides from them certain things. Jesus tells parables, not so the scribes and Pharisees can understand. These are not quaint little illustrations that help them understand the truths. He tells parables so that his people understand, but these things are concealed to the haughty and the arrogant. Uh, their, their, their ignorance, their prideful response to the truth is amplified by the lack of further revelation. Jesus praises his father for not revealing more to them. Um, and on the other hand, those who are thought to be ignorant, those who don't consider themselves elite, those who are not wise or educated, by the world standards, haven't received formal training. These are the ones Jesus says who receive the revelation. this This little prayer is a summary of Jesus's ministry. Those who think themselves wise are passed over. Those who recognize their need and recognize their weakness, who have no pretense of wisdom, who have no self-sufficiency, they are the ones who come to know his kingdom. And God does this revealing and this concealing for his good pleasure. God loves to invert the expectations of the world. He loves to exalt the humble and debase the proud. And Jesus goes on to praise the Father that the Father has deemed it good and right to do this through the Son. That the Son is the exclusive revealer of the Father. So if you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father. Looking again at verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. All things, everything, has been (laughs) delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Lord Jesus is the conduit through which knowledge of the Father and his will comes. To put it simply, you cannot know the Father except through the Son. If you don't worship the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as king, whatever God you worship is not the God of creation. This is a very narrow, exclusive idea. I know. I know this is, uh, this is very, very, um, I have no word for it, but narrow. But it can be no other way. If there is only one God and that God has visited this world in the person of Jesus Christ, then how can anyone reject Jesus and still claim to know the one true God. The fundamental question in religion for the whole world is, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? That is the question on which everything hinges. No one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him, those to whom the son chooses to reveal the father. This is all over the gospels. This truth is uh, is constantly referred to in John's gospel. Jesus says in John's gospel that no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And Jesus also said that those, uh, that, that all the Father gives to him will come to him and it will not, not, they will not be cast aside. That from beginning to end, God is sovereign over the entire process of salvation. And Jesus makes it very clear in this little prayer that no one No one knows the Father apart from the special revelation of the Son, and the Son has the authority to reveal himself to whom he will. Which means that, among many things, among among many truths that are populated from this foundational truth, what this means is that nobody in their own wisdom will ever reason their way into an understanding of God. No one can find God. Knowledge of God can only come by revelation. By his spirit's initiation. Because apart from the spirit, we're blinded. Apart from the spirit, we are ignorant. Uh, Ephesians 4 tells us that apart from union with Christ, man has a futile mind. That he has a darkened understanding. Man is ignorant and possesses a blindness of heart. Colossians 1 says that apart from Christ, we are alienated and enemies in our minds. That's Colossians 1.21. 1 Corinthians 2 says the natural man does not receive the things revealed by the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. Apart from the Spirit of God, all truth looks like foolishness ultimately. Sin has severely affected our ability to reason and even to discern right from wrong, says Romans 1.20-23. We're subject, apart from God's revelation through his spirit, we're subject to all kinds of errors of thought. We believe falsehood. We abound in errors and mental processing. We're prone to self-deception. We're subject to a weakened understanding. Apart from God's gracious acts toward us on his initiation, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of Jesus, we always process the information around us in a twisted way. We close our minds to truths that make us uncomfortable, and we open our mind to lies that make us comfortable. Now, to be clear, our, re- our ability to reason has not been absolutely, utterly obliterated by the fall. The pagan can know things. The heathen can know things, but the scriptures teach us that there are truths that we can't know apart from the spirit. Though there are things we can do, know, and observe, but all of our faculties of understanding Have been significantly spoiled in a way that following our own understanding only leads us to futility. What is the point of all this? The point is that Jesus shows that apart from my revelation, you're still in darkness. No one can know the Father except through me, and I'm the one who reveals myself to you. Here in Matthew, Jesus is referring to the Pharisees and the scribes as the wise and the learned. And they've developed this sophisticated religious system in darkness. They've done all this in ignorance. And because of their arrogance to boot and their outright rejection of Jesus, Jesus has then withheld any further revelation of himself from them. And he gives thanks that the father has given him this charge. Jesus doesn't treat this as something that we should be offended over. He doesn't treat this as something that we should now generate a heated debate with him over. This is a cause for praise. Jesus begins his prayer, I thank you, Father. I thank you that these things are true. I thank you for this reality. He breaks out into doxology so that when the Father hides his face, we worship him. When the Father reveals himself through the glory of his only begotten Son, we worship him. We worship the God who is sovereign over all heaven and earth. We worship the God who is sovereign over the entire process of man's redemption from eternity past to eternity future. And then based on the uh, these truths, based on these truths, Jesus offers himself as a complete and sufficient source of rest for our souls. The sovereignty of Almighty God is an immense comfort And Jesus drives that home in these last few verses. Verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is speaking these words to a generation which has been taught to labor under an impossible workload of extra-biblical law-keeping. They've been driven to weariness and despair under this. Life was a maze of regulations weighted with arcane, lifeless rule-keeping, which dictated every move. And I'm not talking about God's law. God's law is a blessing. God's law is life. I'm talking about the oral law tradition that the Pharisees imposed on top of God's law. And everywhere you turned, there was another touch-not, taste-not, handle-not, There's never any rest in works-based religion. You're always anxious. You're nervous that you're going to fail in some tiny way that someone is going to see and that that person is going to keep score and ridicule you for it. Keeping all the laws of the Pharisees was a life of burdens. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to rebuke the Pharisees for binding heavy burdens hard to bear and laying uh, them on men's shoulders that was one heavy load that they were crushed under. This this heavy load of extra biblical law. They were also burdened under uh, unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin is stressful and burdensome on its own. And this is a universal human experience. Sin that has not been covered, sin that has not been forgiven, generates this buildup of guilt that accumulates for a lifetime. As you sit in silence, and you go down a roster of all the people you've ever offended, all the people that you've ever sinned against, all the ways that you have failed to keep up with your own standard, all the times you've been a hypocrite, it weighs on you. This is soul-crushing stuff. Every offense, every sin, everything you've done, you keep trying to wallpaper over the shame and the regret, but you know that in the deepest part of yourself, you're going to have to give an account And all of this is going to be revealed and you're going to have to answer for it and you don't have an answer. That is terrifying. So they're burdened by this load of these expectations of the Pharisees. They're burdened by a load of unconfessed, uncovered sin, unforgiven sin. And then to add to that, they're burdened under this, this fear of death. The fear of death is exhausting. The knowledge that one day... All of this ends, and you may or may not have a solid landing place after you draw your last breath. Are you sure that you know what's going to happen? Is the, is the grave all there is? Is that just the end? Well, you kind of suppose that it ends there, but what if you're wrong? You have this sneaking suspicion that it doesn't end there. So you have no peace. You have no rest. You have no hope. Just a lot of unanswered questions, and you have nightmares about the possibilities. Jesus invites these refugees of self-righteous religion and sin and the fear of death to draw close to him and to lay their burdens down. He invites them to come and unburden themselves and let him take on this weight. And so he issues them four imperatives. He says, come and take and learn and find. In these just three verses, he says these things, come and take and learn and find. He says, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Turn away from your fruitless, frantic efforts to pile up enough righteous acts to make yourself look good before a human audience. Reject the false religion that says you do good things, so you must be a good person. And instead, put your complete faith and trust in Jesus and in his righteousness. Do what these cities of Galilee didn't do. Put down your arrogance and put on humility. Trust in his plan for redemption and deliverance. And put aside your own. And trust that what he says is is true and that his word has complete final authority over your life. You may be listening or half listening. And you may be sitting there saying, well, I've done that already. So I'm fine. I checked that box. I've trusted him. Okay, do it again. And do it again. And do it every day. Every day, every day, trust in the Lord. Every day, come to him. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. What does that mean practically? How do I do that? How do I trust in him? How do I lean on him? How do I, how do I give him these burdens that he's asking for? How do I do that? Well, here's Here's a way you can do that. Here's a practical way to do this. On every occasion, every day, there is something that's going to happen to you that is is challenging, that is difficult, that requires a response from you. Every day, there's something that you must respond to righteously. And when that happens, when that comes, the first thing you say is, God gave this to me. This came by the sovereign hand of God. Could the sovereign God of all the universe prevented this? He could have. But he didn't He gave this to me. You recognize that, that, that this is a thing that He gave me, and you give thanks. That's the second thing you do is you give thanks for it. You say, "Well, thank you, Lord, thank you for this thing that you have given me, whether it's this false, ti- uh, uh, a flat tire or a coworker who's got a problem with you that doesn't, doesn't make sense, or your child that's freaking out and melting down in the middle of the grocery store for no good reason. now you have to address this and see what's going on. Whatever, whatever it is, whatever it is, thank you. Now, what does God require me to do? What pleases him? What does he require me to do and take action and do it? That, 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 little, that, that little outline of God gave me this, I'm giving him thanks for it. Now, what does he require me? What does he require me to do with this? What it means is that with every burden, with every challenge, with every curve, our habit is to come to the Lord Jesus in this way and trust him that he gave it to us and he's requiring something of us out of it. And, And he promises that his response to that is to give us rest. He says, come to me, bring it to me, and I will give you rest. You're not going to find rest in a thousand other places you take this, a thousand other sources that you turn to, but I will give you rest. I will give you forgiveness. I'll give you my word, my spirit, my people. I'll give you clarity and wisdom and understanding, which all eases our anxieties. It gives us confidence and assurance and peace and obeying him. He says, come, come to me. Then he says, take. He says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke, which not a lot of us have a yoke in the uh, shed out back. Not of us have a yoke in in the attic. Maybe a few of you do. Maybe if you've got animals, you've got a yoke. But a yoke is not something that we see every day. A yoke is a wooden collar or a wooden beam that's fastened over the neck of a work animal that's uh, attached to a plow or to a cart so that the animal can pull the plow or pull the cart. Certain human laborers use yokes as well, as kind of a crossbeam that allows you to carry heavy loads, balanced load, water or, or uh, building materials. Jesus uses this common image of labor, a yoke, to make this point you are already wearing a yoke, you're already pulling. A load. It's not like you're. It's not like you're running around free. You are pulling a load, a cart freighted with your own guilt, with other people's expectations, with worries and bitterness and anger. It's piled high with junk. You know, like the like the Beverly Hillbillies truck. It's just piled high with junk. Uh, I guess most of you are born after 1980 or something. Uh, uh, Fred Sanford, Sanford and Sons' truck is just loaded. It's piled high. How about we take that off of you? How about we we take that load away? Why? So I can have no yoke? I can have no work, no duty, nothing? No, no. Jesus has a yoke for you, but this one is easy. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word easy means well-fitting. When you make a yoke for an ox, uh, and I've never seen one made, I've just read about it, uh, but I've read that you had to measure the shoulders of the animal You you make it, you carve out this wooden beam and then you try it on and you still gotta make adjustments to it to carefully shape the thing so it fits well and so it doesn't chafe the neck of the animal. A good yoke was tailored to fit the ox. And that's what Jesus says he has for you. He says, I have a well-fitting yoke for you. I've made it just for you. It's tailor-made, custom fit. I have a duty for you and I have a responsibility for you that I have measured just right to fit your needs and fit your abilities exactly. I have a place for you to work in my kingdom. I have a field for you to plow. So come to me and be satisfied with the life I give you. Come be satisfied with the body I give you in the family I have placed you in, in the time in history I've called you to live. Come to me and be fitted out with the challenges and the field I have given you to plow. Rest in that. Be happy in that. Break out into songs of thanksgiving over the well-fitted yoke that I have given you. Rest in the role that God has given you. That is what he's calling us to. He says, come. He says, take. And he says, learn from me. Learn, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. How do you learn from him? Well, this one's easy to answer. Any child should be able to answer this one. Jesus says, I am the unique revelation of the father. The father says, this is my well-beloved son. Hear him. So we invest ourselves in knowing Jesus through his word, through the fellowship of his body, the church, through receiving the sacraments and meditating on his word together and conversing about it in community, hearing and repeating and obeying every word. Do that consistently, do that every day, every day, every week, do that for a few decades and and you start to see some real change in your life. You start to see uh, your life growing and flourishing and bearing fruit together. Then after you learn, you find, you find rest for your souls. If your body needs rest, you go to bed. If your mind needs rest, You turn from work and you do something that's less taxing. You do something that you enjoy. You do something that's less demanding. If your soul needs rest, how do you rest your soul? Well, the scriptures show in many places your soul rests in hope. That's what we're looking for when we're burdened and restless and worried. We're in desperate need of hope a hope that is a sure knowledge that things are going to work out. Psalm uh, 62 says, my soul wait patiently for God alone for my hope is in him. And what, here's how he articulates that hope. He is my hope. Only rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. It is a hope in a God who is bigger bigger and mightier and stronger than anything in our lives that we deal with or face. And that he is Immovable, that he is not changed by the shifting sands of time. As the Psalm, um, hymn, hymn writer said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. I, uh, am, uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Uh, all, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That my hope is, is in him and in nothing else. And that hope, that hope is rest for my soul. Jesus grieves for these cities who were beat down and languishing under the oppressive weight of all of these factors. And he offers them rest, and they will not take it. Uh, and, And so he turns to his people and says, don't be like Chorazin. Don't be like Bethsaida and Capernaum. Receive this offer of rest. Enter into his great Sabbath along with as we sang today, all the rest of all the saints of all the ages, as we remember that today the saints of all the ages are resting in and rejoicing around the throne of Jesus right now. We join with them in their praise and in their fellowship in worship. However weary you are, however complicated your problems, Jesus invites you to come, take his yoke, learn of him, and he promises, he guarantees you will find rest for your souls. That's his promise. Avail yourself of it. Come and take and learn and find. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this promise of Jesus and we thank you for the mercy that he extends to us and the rest that he offers us. So may we uh, put down our burdens at his feet and rest entirely in him. We ask that you give us this peace and comfort today. In Jesus' name, amen.